I read uh, now once more Romans chapter 11, verses 18 through 24. I had said we would uh, move on to 25 through 27, but there's just one more thing I'd hope to say about uh, this. And I think you'll see why uh, one more sermon is justified. I hope you will agree. Romans chapter 11 Uh, Verses 18 through 24 now uh, for the third time. Let us give our attention to God's word. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I might uh, might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For you were cut off, uh, cut out of the olive, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a, a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word and we acknowledge our great need of your Holy Spirit, to illumine it to us. Here is a passage which is easy to misunderstand, but by your grace, we believe we are able to understand it, and we hope more and more through the preaching and through the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And so open it to us in this way, we ask humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the the prior sermon was a sermon on apostasy, wasn't it? We saw very clearly... Uh, that we were dealing, uh, or that as we were dealing with the warnings or the threatenings concerning apostasy, that they did not so much concern the elect as individuals, those contemplated in Romans chapter 8 in particular, though uh, certainly these warnings and these threatenings have something to say to the elect, and the elect are able to benefit from them. My interest is not in denying that, but my interest is to stress that The warnings and the threatenings concerning apostasy in Romans chapter 11 concern primarily the church as a visible body, as a people. And the thought uh, is, as the church in the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, consisting mostly of Jews as the nation of Israel, fell away into an estate of apostasy, though a remnant was saved by grace always, so... The church in the new covenant as a visible body now largely composed of Gentiles instead of Jews might go the same way if she doesn't heed the warnings. And so be careful, Paul is saying. And it's in this way that we are to understand the warnings offered to us in those verses. But that's the negative. I want now to consider the positive Side to this, the counterpart to apostasy as a doctrine. And this is how Paul puts it uh, positively in verse 22. He speaks of continuing in his goodness. And you'll notice that's uh, that's the title of 
the sermon, he says, toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And so we could say, I think that is the goal stated positively. Negatively, we do not wish to be cut off as Israel was. Negatively, we do not wish to experience his severity. That's how we're to understand the warnings. But positively, our desire, our goal is to continue in his goodness. It is to abide in the tree and to maintain our place. But here there's another question which we must resolve, and that's how are we to do so? How are we to continue in his goodness? And then there's also the question of whether this somehow depends upon us. And so let us consider the answers uh, to these questions that the apostle gives in these verses. We might call these, I'm somewhat borrowing from Thomas Brooks and the language I'm using Gospel remedies against the evils of pride, unbelief, and apostasy. And there are five gospel remedies and then one final point. And we begin with the first gospel remedy against the evil of pride, unbelief, and apostasy, and that is gospel faith. In the the letter to the Romans, we could say this is true always in the Bible, and and certainly it is, but but in in the letter to the Romans, I think more than anywhere else, Faith is seen as the essence of the Christian position. In fact, as I was reviewing the letter to the Romans this week, so often I've said that the key to understanding Romans is the doctrine of justification. But but, uh, certainly we could say justification by faith, and thus if I said faith instead of justification, you might say, well, you're just saying the same thing. But it just struck me as I went through uh, the letter that that the theme and the stress upon faith, especially beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, is enormous. And if you were to go through Romans and begin to catalog just how many times he stresses or uses the word faith in some form, you might be amazed. So that we might say that faith is the master theme of Romans. It is the essence of what it is to be a Christian and the essence of what it is to be saved, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What is it to be saved? It's to have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. Why? Because it's the power of God to save to all who have faith, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile. That's chapter one. But then you go to chapters three, four and five over and over and over again. It becomes the great argument of chapter 10. Now, I will read a little bit of that. You wouldn't you wouldn't believe how many verses I have cataloged in my notes. I'm not going to read them all to you, though. I have them all at hand. I might have read them. I'll just read this. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way, in contrast to the righteousness, which is of the law, verse five, verse six. The righteousness of faith speaks this way. And 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 the word of faith, which we preach, verse eight. And here's the word of faith, which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is, if you have faith. For with the heart, he says, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Why? Because he says, verse 11, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And then he goes on to speak of how it is that we come by such faith. And his answer is by the preaching in verses 14 through 17. And so as we come to contemplate the downfall of Israel, as we've seen, or the apostasy of Israel in chapters 9 through 11, are we surprised? No, we're not surprised to see that it is the unbelief of Israel that has led to her downfall. Verse 20. They were broken off. Well said, he says, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Verse 23. But they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. Unbelief, faith. That's the real central thing. By the way, he goes on in verse 20. And you stand by faith. Well, what is faith after all? And what is it about faith that makes it so crucial in our consideration of The Christian position, especially in relation to those who have apostatized. Well, let me give this definition. I think it's the best definition that was ever penned. And it's the definition which is given in the Shorter Catechism. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And if I were to perfect that at all, I would just add the word freely as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. Westminster Shorter Catechism number eight. 86. Now that is, I was just reading Romans chapter 10. That is the heart of the gospel that Paul was preaching. Romans 10, Romans 1, Romans chapters 3 through 5, Romans chapter 8. That if you confess, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you cry out as that man did in the gospel, son of David, have mercy on me, you will be saved. That is the gospel that we find that the apostles, and especially Paul now as we find him being the emphasis in Acts, were preaching over and over again. Wherever we found them, they were offering Christ freely to sinners by the preaching. They were inviting them by faith, as I do to you, to receive and accept and rest upon Jesus Christ who is freely offered to you in the gospel. Not to rest upon your works, not to rest upon your worth, not to rest upon your intellect, not to rest upon your birth or your nationality or your parents or your country but to rest solely and entirely upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to you as your Savior. To consent, as William Guthrie says in The Christian's Great Interest, to consent to be saved by him in this way. God publishes good news to sinners far and wide. He says, be saved in this way merely by believing in Jesus Christ, my son. And the heart which has faith says, I consent to be saved in this way. I desire it. I gladly receive this way of salvation. And you see, there's no other way for man to be saved. He may be a Jew by birth. A son of Abraham by natural descent. But if he does not believe, he is not saved. He is outside of the tree. And seeing in particular that Jesus First, freely offered himself unto the people of uh, of the Jews. And that he was second, uh, preached repeatedly by the apostles to the people of the Jews first. And yet they first rejected Jesus and killed him. And then they rejected and sought to kill the apostles. Seeing, in other words, that they abided in unbelief. They continued in unbelief as they do to this day. We cannot be surprised to see that they did not abide in the tree. 
as a people. But Paul is speaking of something more than our place in the tree. He's speaking of abiding there. You see, he's not just saying, how did we come to have a place? He's saying, how will we keep it? Abiding, continuing. And so the emphasis upon faith goes beyond the initial act of believing to its continuance. As Robert Haldane puts it, we continue in God's goodness by continuing in the faith. And I can't think of a better summary, uh, not only of the sermon, but of the text in that line. We continue in God's goodness by continuing in the faith. And this being the crucial thought with regard to faith, namely its continuance, let me briefly say three things about it. And the first is the danger which Paul speaks of, namely that of apostasy. That's the warning. And the warning is this. There's no way to continue in God's goodness except by faith or by continuing in the faith. Whatever our outward uh, affiliation or association with the people of God may be. That is to say, you might be a member in the church as Israel was. And whatever profession of faith you have made If you do not continue in the faith, you will not continue in his goodness. You won't keep your place in the tree. That's the warning concerning apostasy. And so that leads next to the exhortation. The exhortation is simply to continue. Continue in what? In God's goodness. How? By continuing in the faith, as Haldane puts it. To continue in the faith. Uh, let me just read to you how it is put in the book of Hebrews, chapter uh, chapter three, verses seven and eight. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion as uh, uh, as in the rebellion. And he also says uh, just before that. That we must hold fast the confidence and rejoicing in hope firm to the end. Go on. You've begun in faith. Keep going. In other words, it's not enough to rest upon past experiences. It isn't enough to say, you know, I once had faith. The exhortation is this. Today, if you hear his voice today. We must ever stand in the faith. We must go on even as we have begun in the Christian life. We can't, as Paul says in Galatians 3, begin by the graces of the spirit, by the hearing of faith and be perfected by works. No, we begin by the hearing of faith. We continue by the hearing of faith. And I wonder, is that your conception of what it is to endure and to persevere in the Christian life? But that leads in the third place to this assurance. The assurance is this. Those who continue in the faith will continue in God's goodness. They will not be cut off, but they will keep their place in the tree. In other words, they have nothing to worry about. There is nothing to fear for the one who has faith. He will ever stand in God's goodness. Indeed, the evidence of God's goodness itself is found in his abiding faith. But that leads me to the next remedy, and that is gospel fear, which he speaks of both in verse 20 and verse 22. Do not be haughty, but fear. Now, there's several things to be said on the subject. The first is. It is because men do not fear God that they forsake him. And I think that's really the key thought here. It is because men do not fear God that they forsake him. And thus it is the common exhortation to those who stand in danger of apostasy, which we find whether in the Gospels or in Hebrews or in the pulpits of churches ever since. 
It is especially necessary to impress upon the minds of those who are straying this thing, the fear of God. Not the fear of man, but the fear of God. The danger that they stand in, the fearfulness of their position. It is because men do not fear God that they forsake him. Now, that is especially clear, is it not, in the 20th century, that the church has forgotten. Now, we're in the, I realize we're in the 21st century, but I'm, I'm rooting the present state in the prior century. The church has forgotten all about the fear of God, the severity of God, the severity of God's judgment on those who fell in the wilderness, the severity of God's judgment that might fall upon us if we should go as they went. And as the church has, I'm speaking broadly, as the church has forgotten about this thing, the severity of God's judgment, that she has fallen into the very sins that arouse it. Do you see that? Pride, complacency, and so on. The emphasis of the church today is always on his goodness, never his severity. Always proclaiming as the false prophets of the old covenant did, uh, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Thinking nothing bad can ever befall the church, however bad she becomes. And the warning here to the Gentile churches who fall into the same errors is that the very same severity that fell upon Israel will fall upon her. And it is in light of that that the apostle says, as you might say to one of your friends, if he was becoming wayward in his life as a Christian, do not become proud, but fear. Do you realize the fearfulness of your position? Fear whom? Fear God. Or we could say fear what? Well, fear this. Fear suffering the same fate that Israel suffered. But one question we have is this. And I can almost hear you asking it and I'm asking it myself. Is such fear compatible with the kind of faith and the kind of assurance That Paul has been commending in this letter ever since chapter 5. Again in chapter 8 and then in chapters uh, 9 and 10. But especially chapter 8. We understand naturally the man who is falling away. He's the man who needs to be warned. He's the man who needs to be afraid of his position. Of where his sin is leading him. But what about those who are in the church and who are continuing in the faith? And thus, who are continuing in God's goodness, ought they to fear God in the same way? And here is my answer to that question. That part of the faith that we have in God is a belief in all that is true of him and all of his revelation. And in that, that means the Bible, by the way. So all of his word to us. And in that revelation, we behold both his goodness and his severity. We, he, we see uh, his goodness, obviously, in many places, but uh, with respect to what is being said here uh, and in Hebrews, something that is found in the Old Testament, we find his severity on whom? On those who fell, those who fell in the wilderness. Why? Because they hardened their hearts in rebellion. They heard the word, but they didn't believe. And we ask ourselves when we are confronted with that in the Bible, whether in Hebrews or in Psalm 95 or in the Old Testament. We ask ourselves, what is to keep me from suffering the same fate? We don't stand above them in pride. I'll come to that in a moment. But we ask ourselves, honestly, 
How am I to keep from going as they went? You see, as we read God's word and as we believe it, there's a kind of fear that grips us and thus awakens us to the terrible possibility of falling away. That is a possibility that God's word seemingly ever confronts us with. And that is the kind of fear which I'm saying is actually good. It's conducive to faith. It's conducive to perseverance. You say to yourself, as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, you know, I I read what happened to the people in the old covenant. And I have to say honestly that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I, I see it with my own eyes. I believe it. It's a fearful thing. It's a terrible thing to experience his wrath and his animosity towards sin. And so as you read his word and you believe it, you consider his greatness and his majesty, his holiness and his wrath. And you cannot help but tremble a little. And you're meant to. You're meant to tremble. Indeed, here is the irony. Let me say it again. It is because the apostate is not afraid that he falls. It is because men do not fear God that they forsake him. It is because they think solely in terms of God's goodness and not in terms of his severity. Or they behold his severity and they become proud and say, you know, that happened to them, but it could never happen to me. And so he begins to think highly of himself and he begins to think of God lightly. This is the man who knows nothing of the fear of God, which scripture uh, uh, inculcates in the heart of the believer. If he did fear God, he would not fall. He would repent, realizing his error, realizing his danger. But the believer, I'm saying, is someone who knows this fear, or at least he ought to. Do not be haughty, but fear, Paul says to the church. Because gospel fear is something that makes the believer watchful. It not only awakens him, but it makes him watchful. It makes him heed the warnings of scripture. And in this way, rather than falling away, he continues in God's goodness. Now, I wish I could say more on that point, And in a sense, I will. But let me go on to the next gospel remedy. And that's gospel humility. Verses 18 and 20. It is very clear, and I've been saying repeatedly, that spiritual pride was the cardinal sin of the Jews. In the days of our Lord and in the days uh, of the apostles. And it was their pride along with their unbelief. And you really can't speak of one without speaking of the other. That led to their downfall. And now Paul is saying this is a real temptation facing the Gentile church. And, And I think we can be honest and say, you know, it really wasn't just the first century. This is true today. In fact, Uh, Before you began to preach, Pastor, Romans chapters 9 through 11, I wasn't even thinking about the Jews. And is it possible that there is a kind of spiritual pride that has crept into your heart? The temptation facing the Gentile church is to assume a kind of spiritual pride and superiority to those who were cut off and cast away. What is the apostles' message to such a church? It's do not boast, do not be haughty which we find in verses 18 and 20. In other words, if we were to state that in the positive, be humble. Be humble. Why? Well, something I said in an earlier sermon, and let me say it again. uh, This is a kind of master principle in Paul's letters because faith as a principle or faith as a law is something that excludes boasting. 
And if you know anything about the kind of faith that Paul preached, the righteousness of faith, you'll understand why that is. And you see him saying he said it in this letter. He says it in Corinthians. He says it over and over again. There's no room for boasting for the one who has faith. The man who has faith is nothing to boast in but God. You see, that's the essence of what it is to have faith. Whereas the man who boasts in self is really relying on his own works or himself or his worth or his nationality. Not only that, but the man who boasts really shows you that he knows nothing of the fear of God. If he feared God, he wouldn't boast. He would tremble. And so you see how it all fits together. Gospel faith, gospel fear, gospel humility. But let us see why. It is that humility is becoming for a Christian and especially for a Gentile Christian. You see, the apostle is saying here, and I am saying that it is a very odd and indeed a very unbecoming thing for the Gentile of all people to boast over the Jew. Because for a very long time, and we'll see this later on in Romans chapter 11, for a very long time, Uh, And certainly Paul says this elsewhere, such as Ephesians chapter two, the Gentile had no place at all. He was as far from God as you could possibly imagine. He had no thought of God. He had no desire for God. His mind was was full of sin and the pursuit of sin. That's what animated him and his desires and his pursuits. The Gentile had no place that you did. But here's the amazing thing. That now he has a place. Now you have a place. Isn't that the, um, the most amazing thing from the standpoint of the whole of redemptive history? The Jew has no place, but now you have a place. And now you are able by faith to say, Abraham is my father, though I have no natural relation to him whatsoever. I didn't want a place, but now I have a place. Solely by God's grace and grafting me in. And now that that has happened, do you begin to boast, Paul says? Have you become proud? How strange, how unbecoming, you Gentile who wasn't even seeking it. Chapter 9, verse 30. Whereas the Jew was, but God bestowed upon you and not upon them the the gift of salvation that you neither sought nor wanted. And does that not humble you? It ought to. And what is humility after all? Is humility not a lowly heart, a heart that is free from pride and boasting? The man who knows that he deserves nothing from God but wrath and severity, who considers his calling and realizes he has nothing in himself to commend him to God, as Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, to the end of the chapter. What is it about you that you're so proud of anyways? No, the humble heart is free. It is emptied of pride, of boasting. It is the lowly heart. And the humble heart is the heart that sees, above all, God's goodness as the soul found from which his salvation springs. Let us see that as well. The humble heart is the heart which beholds God's goodness, and there he finds the only possible reason for his salvation, that is, for his place in the tree, and such a thought humbles him. Not only that, but it fills him with wonder. Wonder that he has a place at all. How was it? Have you ever thought this? How was it that I, of all people, should have a place, a sinner such as I? Was it not 
an immeasurable act of goodness on God's part to give me a place to save me, a sinner who didn't want it, who didn't seek it. Indeed, so great is his sense of wonder that at times he wonders whether one so sinful as he could have a place at all, except by God's singular goodness to him. Nothing else could explain the place that he has, the salvation that he enjoys. But seeing this, his heart is emptied of boasting, except in God. You see, the greater a view he has of his own sinfulness and his unworthiness, the greater a view he has of God's goodness in saving him. Yes, and so he won't boast in the presence of God. And if ever he does, he had better, Paul says, and I'm saying he had better once again begin to consider God's goodness or else his severity. You see, such thoughts are apt, they are meant, or they are calculated to humble the proudful boast of the redeemed sinner, the goodness of God, the severity of God, to see our own unworthiness of salvation in comparison to God, to see the goodness of God in saving us even as he was severe to others. You see, the real trouble with the Christian who has become proud who has begun to boast either in himself or over others, is that he's really forgotten about God altogether. He's begun to think of salvation solely in terms of himself. But Paul is saying, when this begins to happen, you need to get a view of God. And you won't have anything left to boast in except God himself. Oh, consider his goodness or else his severity. Not only that, but he'll really begin to forget others, too. He won't busy himself boasting against others who are not saved. He will rather think to himself, why was it that I had a place and not they? That's my portrait of gospel humility. And I ask you just now before we go on, do you know anything about it? And do you know how to get it, assuming, as is so often the case in the Christian life, that we've begun to lose it and to become proud? But let us go on to the fourth point very briefly, and that is gospel hope. And verse 23 is especially relevant here. He he paints a picture of of severity and warning, but then he says a more hopeful word. They also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. In other words, you see how one gives way to another to speak of the prospect of danger, the danger of falling away ought to make us uh, almost in the same breath. You see, speak of better things. And it's common in Scripture to do this. If you think, for instance, of what is said in Hebrews, Hebrews is essentially the sustained exhortation of this very theme, the theme of perseverance. Hebrews chapter six, he speaks of apostasy. And having done so in so many verses, he goes on to say, but of you, we are confident of better things. You see, as terrible as the danger is, immediately his mind becomes hopeful. And what I am suggesting to you is that the heart, the humble heart, the faithful heart is capable of both thoughts and both feelings, both at once feeling the danger and at the very same moment feeling uh, strange and happy feelings of uh, of. The future prospects of the church. 
even as he considers the, the dangers. But the last gospel remedy and the fifth is that of perseverance, or I could put it even more simply that of continuing. Yes, I am saying the way to continue is to continue. Let me come back to that. But so often we find that in Scripture, uh, a line uh, is put to us like this, uh, especially in the Gospels. Whoever endures to the end will be saved. Now, again, that that seems to be the, uh, the sustained exhortation of Hebrews and also Revelation. The need to continue, the need to persevere. Now, I read uh, a little bit from Hebrews chapter three, uh, Verses 6 through 8, let me read the exhortation a little later in verses 12 through 14. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You find something similar at the end of 2 Peter verses uh, chapter three, verses 17 and 18. I won't read them, but you could if you wanted it. And really, it's the same thought here. You've made it this far, but keep going. Don't lose heart. Don't turn back. I, I, I remember once reading John Owen uh, say, uh, not very profoundly, the way to start is to begin. Now, there's obvious wisdom here. And so I say the same thing about finishing the race on the other side. The way to finish is to keep going. Now, isn't that obvious? But it needs to be said, doesn't it? You'll never reach the promised land. That's heaven. Unless you endure. Whoever endures to the end will be saved. That's the thought which is ever before us in Scripture. You've got to persevere in faith. You've got to be steadfast to the end. You've got to maintain your confidence. In other words, to state it negatively, there is no scenario in which a man might forsake Christ and still be saved. In which a man might turn back and yet still enter the promised land. And that is especially relevant if you think of the exhortation in Romans 11 or in Hebrews in light of our own experience. Haven't we all known many who have, who began the race and yet who have turned back and have forsaken the church and Christ and their profession? And do we think for a moment that such people are saved? Do you see that? Do you see the danger in turning away, in forsaking your profession? Hold fast. As you are standing in the faith this morning, so continue to stand. There were those who once did, it seemed, Run the race alongside of us, but they run the race with us no more. Consider them. Consider those who fell. But even more than that, I would say along uh, and, and amplifying the exhortation with the message of Hebrews, consider those who have finished the race using the language of Hebrews 10 or excuse me, Hebrews 11 and the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. Those who have not only run the race, but those who have finished the race, those who have gone before us and entered their promised rest. And oh, above all, think of Christ himself. Who ran the race set before him with endurance, he did not shrink back, he did not turn back, but he finished the race and we are called to follow him. Think of Christ And as you think of Christ, here's the exhortation to persevere. We must have a heart always to follow Jesus Christ and to hold fast to him and to hold fast to the things which we at first have believed or else there's no hope of finishing the race. 
But let me make one final point, a sixth point, and this isn't so much a gospel remedy, but it's, it's the thing that undergirds these five gospel remedies, lest we thought for a moment that it depended upon us. And that is the mystery of his goodness, as my final point. Here's the mystery. If I'm in and if I stay in, it's solely by his goodness to me. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. But if I find that I am out, apostate, unbelieving, it is my own doing. That's the mystery. We do not read of being grafted in by our own power. It is God who gives us a place and a portion in the tree. But we do read of those being cut out by their own unbelief. It's their own doing, Paul has said. Well, you say, does he not harden whom he wills? Romans chapter 9, fair enough. God has a part in the downfall of the wicked, but as Calvin says, he's only giving men over to what their sin deserves and what they desire for themselves. But the key thought here is that man is responsible for falling away. But if he finds that he is able to continue in God's goodness, he ascribes all to God's goodness and not, uh, none to himself. Man gets no credit in his salvation, none whatsoever. It's the Lord who saves. If I am saved, it is his goodness to me. And here's a further part of the mystery. Part of how he keeps us, part of how he manifests his goodness to us is by exhorting and warning us of the danger so that if we are made to feel the danger, if this passage of scripture has emptied ourselves of our boast and caused us to fear, then our place is secure. God has manifested his goodness to us in warning us of the danger, even as he says in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. And I owe, uh, I owe this to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says there, I will put my fear in their hearts that they will not depart from me. It's because they're afraid. It's because they have this sense of godly fear that they'll never leave me. You say, how did it get there? God put it there. And what was he doing? He was preserving you. Even as the unbelieving had no fear, as he put his fear in your heart so he preserved you. Do you see that? And that is part of his goodness to you. And so here's the portrait of the true Christian. The true Christian is one who reads a passage like this. And I wonder if I'm describing you. The true Christian is one who reads this passage and is made anxious. And so he's working out his faith with fear and trembling. He's awakened. He's watching. He's standing fast. He's enduring. He's fighting. And so he goes on and endures to the end. It seemed at times his working was all his own, but he realizes this truth about himself. It is God who works in him and who keeps his own for himself. And you know, the Lord has many ways of doing so. These warnings of scripture are just one of many. But in all his many ways of keeping his people for himself and causing them to continue in his goodness, let us be sure that he gets the praise and the glory And not we ourselves. Let us learn to say, as we will soon say, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. 
For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And let us come to the table.